retreat. First full day of practice. And it is a day of settling, a day of calming. Just like every day will be on this retreat. Whether you have already been here for a month or two months, still this quality of wise attitude, the quality of wise intention, is really so important to reflect on, to have a sense of what this day is really dedicated to, what it is in the surface of. Nothing is guaranteed. Just because we have a supportive environment and good company and a schedule, nothing is intrinsically present within any of those. I think what it, it is up to each one of us to explore how it is that we create for ourselves a dedicated space, a committed space, a space that is dedicated to seeing clearly, to calming everything that arises, a space that has within it the willingness to wholeheartedly meet and be present with our mind, our body, the moment, just as it is. All of this is really born of our inner attitude and our inner intention. I know for myself in my own practice, there have been many times when it looks like I'm meditating. And in reality, something else entirely is going on. You know, looks like I'm sitting, looks like I'm walking. And inwardly, this inner world, this inner landscape, can have an entirely different life, which really isn't that meditative. You know, we can be entertaining ourselves or preoccupied or uh, speculating or judging or comparing, evaluating. And all of this is really learning to meet all of that is actually what it means that we're practicing rather than looking like we're practicing. There's a saying in the Tibetan tradition that <clears throat> preoccupations never end until the day that we die. But that preoccupations end in the moment that we put them down. That is their nature. Now in this day, you know, everyone has a life before they come on retreat. Everyone has a life that they go back to after retreat. And there's a real, I think, a real helpfulness in not trying to push that life away, but remembering that our time here, your time here, 
is about meeting this life in this moment, not the life that has already gone by or the life that is yet to come, but where you are just now. It takes some patience. It takes really some patience. I know we can often have sort of romantic ideas about letting go. You know, we think we let go of something and that's it. It really shouldn't reappear. After all, we have let go of it. Why has it reappeared? But letting go, like anything else in this practice, is something that happens in the moment. And I think there's a real kindness in learning to let go of this word again. Oh, there I am lost there again. Or there is that thought again. You know, or there I am judging again. It's not really reminiscent, a word that's not really very reminiscent of a beginner's mind. It was, it's a word that often carries so much of a sense of continuity and judgment within it that this shouldn't be happening. How do we know something should be happening? Because it's happening. That's enough already. This practice really is a practice of connectedness, of intimacy. It's not a practice of disconnection or aversion. And that is part of wise attitude and wise intention. To really have the willingness to be intimate with, to be connected with, to welcome whatever it is that appears. To put out the welcome mat, to be hospitable. But putting out the welcome mat and being hospitable doesn't mean that you have to kind of offer everything that arises a four-course meal. It's quite enough just to know this is a thought, this is a feeling, this is an image, this is a memory. I always feel that it's very, very important to come into the practice and come into a retreat really with a sense of appreciation and delight in many ways. It doesn't mean that everything is pleasant. We sense it really of appreciating, on one hand, all of the kind of countless people in our lives who contributed in some way for us to be here. Even the difficult people who've really contributed, you know, in encouraging us to look more deeply, to see more, more fully. A sense of appreciation for yourself your own willingness, your own sincerity of heart, your own commitment, appreciating that. Appreciating everything that is around you, the loveliness of the day, the loveliness of the, the sun, the loveliness of the frost on the grass, the loveliness of being cared for here. You know, the Buddha once said that this path is one that is lovely in the beginning, lovely in the middle, and lovely in the end. Now, I've always found this a very kind of interesting comment. <laughs> because all of us know that this is actually not intrinsically so. Hmm? You've come on retreats before, and you know that retreats can be absolutely miserable in the beginning. <laughs> 
and sometimes they're pretty hard in the middle, and sometimes they're kind of lovely in the end, but the loveliness in the end sometimes has something to do with our relief that it's over, <laughs> rather than because of some grand fruition. So for me, it's always a kind of investigation what the Buddha was meaning by that sense of loveliness in the beginning, the middle, and the end. What is really asked of us, asked for how we approach our practice, for that to be true. Lovely in the beginning. I think part of that is really, really remembering and reflecting upon how much this path and this practice is really a path of aspiration. It is a path path of bringing into being, evoking into being, all that is wholesome, all that is healing, all that is freeing, all that is liberating. It is really remembering that sense of aspiration, of reaching for what is possible. I'm sure that what really draws most of us to this practice is actually that sense of possibility. When we hear of the possibility of very profound peace, of very profound compassion, of freedom, of sensitivity, of wakefulness, This is something that really kind of echoes within our own hearts. It is what, for most of us, draws us to practice. I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you read a brochure from Gaia House and, you know, we put in the brochure, oh, why don't you come along on retreat and suffer and, you know, be unhappy and, you know, be miserable, probably nobody would come, not surprisingly. But there is something about that sense of possibility, I believe, that really draws us. And perhaps the acknowledgement, too, that when these possibilities of wakefulness and peace and compassion and freedom are spoken of in this practice and teaching, they're not speaking about somebody else. You know, they're not speaking, the Buddha wasn't speaking about a favored few, a kind of spiritual elite was really speaking about the possibilities of each human heart. I don't think it's so unfamiliar for us. I know for most of us, I believe when we practice, it's not really like entering a foreign country. You know, we sit down, maybe we have just a, a, a glimpse of calmness, a glimpse of stillness, and we know we've been there before in our lives, in different situations, in different places, in nature, alone, with others. We have had that kind of taste, might even just be a small taste, of freedom, of intimacy, of connectedness, and we know its loveliness. We know its loveliness, and we know its authenticity. And it is often what brings us here. Not only the fact that we may have had those tastes in the past, but that real questioning of, does it really have to be an accident? Does it have to be an accident that just every now and again, if we're lucky in this life, we stumble across a moment of happiness? Is it just an accident 
that we happen to end up in places of uh, contractedness and suffering? Does it have to be an accident that just every once in a while the kind of, uh, you know, sort of arduousness of our life somehow gets interrupted every once in a while by a moment of, of peace or a moment of well-being? I think what this teaching really says is that it is not an accident. That happiness, that peace, that calmness, and that suffering and misery and disconnection, that these are actually not mysteries. They are not mysteries. That we learn to cultivate, learn to cultivate that which is free. In Pali, the word for meditation is bhavana, which translated means to bring into being. To bring into being. Now, every moment in our life, consciously or unconsciously, we are indeed bringing something into being. Something is coming into being. It might be obsession, it might be unhappiness, it might be sadness, it might be grief. Something is coming into being. It might be happiness, warmth, loving kindness. The practice is really one of exploring both what is coming into being and what we are bringing into being. And for this path to be lovely in the beginning, relies upon that clarity of intention. As I mentioned, what is this time dedicated to? What is it that we are bringing into being? There's a wonderful part of a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She says, when, when you're invited to a party... Remember what parties are like before answering. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. Walk around feeling like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Imagine if we had that sense in, our, in the whole of our life. That we walked around feeling like a leaf. Knowing we could tumble any second. Then I think we would wisely decide what to do with our time and what to do with our attention. And this brings a sense of immediacy, perhaps even a sense of urgency into our practice, that we practice as if our life depends upon it. And in some real way, it truly does. Urgency without haste, urgency without ambitiousness, Urgency without striving, but an urgency of a sincere heart, an urgency of genuine dedication. 
attitude here is so important. You know, sometimes when people start on a retreat, they can feel so exhausted from their lives, they feel like they need a lot of recovery time. And sometimes that is true. You know, these first couple of days need to be very gentle days. But being aware of where recovery time gets translated into postponement practice. You know, that tomorrow is surely a better day to be mindful. You know, or when my body is feeling better, or, you know, when my mind is feeling better, or when I have everything perfect, surely that's a better day to be mindful. It, it's, you know, when I've indulged in this last little fling with fantasy, <laughs> you know, or a little last fling with rage, that's going to be a better day to be mindful. That somehow that, that better day just never really seems to arrive. So knowing, <coughs> knowing really the difference between taking care of yourself <coughs> as you settle and when that does maybe get translated into more of a postponement, a later, a waiting for the perfect moment to be present in. You know, there's a Tibetan saying that says, <clears throat> by the time you've set yourself up with a comfortable place to stay, plenty of food, warm clothes, and a generous benefactor, you've completely cultivated the demon before even starting to cultivate the dharma. Just being mindful of that. For the practice to be lovely in the middle. Well, the loveliness of the middle is, of course, related to the loveliness of the beginning. And I think we wouldn't be here if we actually hadn't, all of us, tasted some of that sense of loveliness. When we do really see it, it it's actually not such a heroic feat to get to a place where we begin to calm down. We begin to feel more at home in ourselves, more at home in our bodies, more at home in the moment. We begin to sense that, that deepening contentment and ease. And it's like our mind just becomes a little brighter. Our heart becomes a little brighter. And as our heart and mind becomes a little brighter, so too does everything around us. Our capacity to be touched, our, our capacity, our willingness, our openness to being enlivened. More and more we see the way in which mindfulness, really the, the power of mindfulness, is to illuminate our world. It's almost the power of mindfulness is to wake up our world. And we start to see that shift happening. And we've seen it many, many times. You know, you can walk in the garden and when the mind is so full, so overflowing with thought, it's like there's no room for anything to touch us. There's no room for anything to, to move us. But as we start to calm, our capacity just to see more deeply, to see more fully, truly to be touched, really starts to wake up within ourselves. And it is not just the outer world, it is also the inner world that mindfulness illuminates. Nurturing that, that real willingness, that, that dedication to being awake, 
It's right there is room for everything. The swirling thoughts, the waves of feeling, everything that happens in our body, everything we see and hear and feel and touch. We're learning to make room. And we make room by starting to let go of some of the busyness, knowing that there's also room for that. It's not an enemy. I think one of the greatest gifts of this practice and part of the loveliness of the middle is really discovering a mind that is a friend, a heart that is a friend. And that is so transforming, so deeply, deeply transforming. To be lovely in the ending I'm not even sure of the wisdom of thinking about endings, but for sure, all of the endings in our life are related to the middles and the beginnings. The fruit of the practice, the benefits of the practice, to begin to find some unshakability within equanimity, within calmness, within compassion, within loving-kindness, within clarity, to begin to find some unshakability within that. I am always awed somewhat in teaching to really see just how little time it actually seems to take for a person to move from a sense of confusion and fragmentation to a deeper sense of ease and calmness. It really doesn't take much time at all. And it's not, as I mentioned, the surroundings or the silence. It is due to our own willingness, where we have chosen to make our home. Whether we choose to make our home in confusion or whether we choose to make our home in seeing more simply and clearly. But it is a journey. It is a journey. There's no other way to put it except to say that it is a path that requires patience, it requires equanimity, it requires kindness, and it requires that to be really balanced with dedication and sincerity. Now one way of framing this path is to see it as being a movement from applied attention to sustained attention. Applied attention is where we all begin in the practice. You know, we choose our focus, perhaps mindfulness of breathing, We place our attention there, it disconnects, wanders away, we come back, we reapply that attention, it's gone again, we reapply. That is what applied attention is. With practice, with practice, that which starts as being so effortful becomes more effortless. Applied attention, that movement from applied attention to sustained attention, for most people, is a journey through what we call the hindrances. It's a journey through the mental states of sloth, of torpor, the mental state of restlessness and agitation, of aversion, resistance, of craving, that sense of wanting. And it's a journey through the mental state of doubt. Now, sometimes people have this idea that these are kind of preliminary mental states that are somehow intrinsic to retreat beginnings. 
and then after you know you practice a few more days, they go away. I think this is really an unhelpful perception. Because what I see in long-term practice is that whenever anybody comes up to an edge where they're being asked to let go of something or see something more deeply, one of those hindrances will arise. Those mental states that we call the obscurations and that they obscure our capacity to see clearly are really kind of the resting place of I, of me. And one of the reasons they arise so strongly in the beginning of retreats is because we're kind of unsettled by the transition. Our sense of being in control is somehow unsettled. The sense of me feels like it doesn't really have a ground, the ground of familiarity, the ground of habit, the ground of control. So sometimes it is true, most times, the beginning of retreats often see a wave of these mental states really strongly. And then they calm down. (coughs) Now, do they calm down because they've really been uprooted, or do they calm down simply because we feel more in control again? You know, we've got our schedule figured out. We've sort of sussed out who's here. We know there's not going to be enough food at lunchtime. You know, we're a little bit more in control again. So the hindrances tend to calm down a little. But they keep arising. What I, I think is very important about these obscuration states is to really see them as mental states. And also to acknowledge the way that these mental states of you know of dullness, of agitation, of, of craving, aversion, of doubt, they are really kind of the ground of pretty well all of the emotional and psychological storms that we experience in our life. They're life mental states. They're not retreat mental states. You know, dullness has all that whole spectrum of, you know, from real sloth and torpor to just a kind of sense of inner numbness, uh, a numbness inwardly, a sense of disconnection, of not really being touched. You know, agitation has a whole spectrum from just being slightly antsy, you know, to real anxiety and worry and, and, and obsession. You know, aversion can just be a little bit of impatience, or it can be terrible rage and and hatred. You know, desire, craving can be just that, you know, just feeling of things aren't quite right, I just need a little bit more, fix a little bit more, to these real absolute bereft states of longing and yearning. And of course, doubt is a very familiar visitor in our life. From, you know, little momentary doubts to very deep, almost paralyzed states of uncertainty. To really know, find the willingness to know these states of mind when they arise. And the patience and the willingness to meet them fully. Sometimes it's really helpful just to know them. This is dullness. This is agitation. This is aversion. This is doubt. Because sometimes knowing them is really what allows us to ask, what do they need? What do they really need? You know, if there is dullness, if there's a sense of numbness, what is really missing is a sense of quality of, of vitality, of aliveness. Sometimes we need to walk a little bit more. We need, we need to kind of really put a little, bring a little bit more energy into the practice. With agitation, it needs the opposite. 
we need sometimes to seclude our sense doors a little bit more. You know, not read the notice board a hundred times in a day, you know, not be planning great projects and hikes, you know, not be endlessly finding something else to entertain us. We need to calm down a little and find a little more stillness, seclude the sense doors some. You know, when there's aversion, resistance, we really need to ask ourselves, where is the kindness in our practice? Where is the kindness in this moment? If there's a lot of craving, wanting, the feeling like, you know, nothing is ever enough, we need to ask ourselves, what in this moment is truly lacking? What in this moment is truly absent? And when there is doubt, we need commitment. It is not a question of committing to a month or committing to a thousand sittings. It's a question of committing to steadiness in this moment. Committing to seeing most clearly just in this moment that we're in. Often, for those of you who are beginning, a beginning in a retreat often starts with a real simplicity. You know, it's a little mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the walking, starting to ease yourself into a seamless schedule. With the mindfulness of breathing, being aware that it's not about pushing everything else away, but it's about learning to calm the mind and to calm the moment. And with mindfulness of breathing, just focusing on, just really sensing, being connected with the breath in your body, is the beginning of all connection. Being intimate with just one breath at a time is a training really in being intimate with one moment at a time in our life. The Buddha talked about breathing in, breathing out with calmness. Breathing in, breathing out, calming the formations. Calming the formations. Of course, there may be a million thoughts. We only calm one at a time. We only let go one moment at a time. We learn to come back with gentleness, but to come back with commitment. Learning that this is kind of the way, this is the path to calmness. For most of us, calmness has a great deal to do with our willingness to let go. Our willingness to let go of dwelling, our willingness to let go of preoccupation, our willingness to let go of being lost. To come back, to find this breath, is to find this moment. With the walking too, really sustaining that sense of dedication. I think with walking practice, it's often the place where we see most uh, impulsiveness arise. You know, in the middle of a sitting, you know, you have a million thoughts about more interesting things to be doing. But most people in the middle of a sitting, you know, wouldn't have the thought, oh, I'd really like a cup of tea, you know, get up, walk out, have a cup of tea, then come back. Most of us wouldn't do that. We have a sort of sense of discipline, a sense of container within the sitting. But in walking meditation, you often see how impulse seems to have much more power, but it's because we give it more authority. So many people talk about starting a walking period, you know, they're really determined and clear intention. 
you know, one, once or twice up the walking path. Oh, well, that's enough, you know. The rest, I think I'll go check out the garden, you know, or, you know, see what's happening over there, or have a little interest in how that other person is walking, or it really is time for a cup of tea, you know. And before we know it, the impulse has led us off into being some, something somewhere else. And I think, you know, real skillfulness in the practice is to really see that power of impulse because it's really a big factor in our lives. And it is impulse that often leads us into places that are very far from where we really wish to be. You know, the impulsive words that we later regret, the impulsive acts that say, you know, why did I do that? You know, the impulse to be lost in, in thinking, in obsession. And part of the skillfulness of practice is really learning to put clear intention where impulse used to live. It is knowing the moment. Often when, sometimes when mindfulness is the path of mindfulness is spoken of, it's often spoken of in three steps. One is to know the mind, to shape the mind, and to free the mind. To know the mind as it is, to shape the mind with clear intention, with kindness, with sincerity, with interest, to free the mind, to free the mind from that which really leads to to suffering, to disconnect, to free the mind. So I hope that you do have a lovely beginning and a lovely middle and a lovely end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.